welcome to episode 75 of Running Matters. My name's Matt North. I'm joined by my co-host, Paul Hadfield. How are you, mate? I am very well. Enjoying the day off. Yeah. Fantastic. You're working? I am working. Working hard. <laughs> Looking forward to a weekend in the Blue Mountains. Yeah, running. yeah, me too, mate. A couple of big runs out there, 30Ks or so. Yep. Our special guest today is Alan Tung. Thanks for giving up your time today, Al. Fantastic. It's great to be able to connect and chat with you guys. Nice one. How, how's the weather down there in Canberra? It's, uh, it's beautiful. It's a really nice time of the year at the moment. Um, you know, the change of seasons is pretty, pretty spectacular in Canberra and it hasn't been too windy, which we notoriously get this time of year. It's, it's, it's really nice. Nice Beautiful. Before we get into it, I'd like to thank our partners, Goo Energy, Ranella, Sydney Brewery, Guy Me Allied Health, Basecamp Altitude, T8 Run, Precision Hydration and Fractal Performance Headwear. So our 220-game veteran of the NRL, uh, you played with the Canberra Raiders for 13 years and you captained, you captained them for five years. I believe you were told that you'd never play in the NRL. Yeah, it's a big part of my, um, my story and my journey through, actually. I mean, uh, I was never the, the, the biggest player. I was never the most skillful player. You know, right from when I was, you know, pretty young. Um, but I was pretty determined as well. That was one of my, uh, I think, key assets going through. Um, and I, and I love the, loved the game. Um, but I did have some you know, moments throughout my career, even, you know, back in high school, um, but also when I came down to the Raiders, just, you know, questioning, you know, if, if I was right to make it in the NRL. So, um, you know, I used that as, that as motivation, uh, to make sure that I got the best out of myself. But um, it, uh, it certainly was an important part, especially in my life post-footy now. The lessons that I took away from those key moments in my life um, were really important. So at the time, I thought I was going through something that, you know, probably in that situation, you're going, why me? But now I look back on it and I'm just so grateful for those people that did question me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a... Character building. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so now you're, you're working uh, as an NRL ambassador and you've got two programs, State of Mind and Voice Against Violence. Um, do you want to tell us how, how those programs came about? Were they, they already going when you started at the NRL? Uh, well, not really. Um, they've always had a bit of work in that space, but uh, these programs in particular have come more about in the last... Uh, four or five years, um, but to, to sort of try and paint a bit of a picture how that all came about, I, I retired in 2011. Um, I actually had 2012 to go on my contract at the Raiders and uh, we've had all um, intentions of filling that out, um, but I copped an injury four minutes into the round one in 2011. Um, I did a grade three AC, AC was sitting up nearly touching my ear. It was you know completely um, busted, I needed surgery. And I decided to um, try and put the surgery off till the end of the year. And I, I battled on, I needled it up and taped it down and tried to get through the season. But I think it was sown early on these seeds of, you know, maybe my body has just, um, uh, you know, had, had enough. It's, uh, I was really struggling. I wasn't playing to the potential, um, you know, what I expected of myself. Um, and I really believe what my teammates wanted of me. And so I retired, you know, still with 12 months to go. I wasn't completely sure what I was going to do when I finished playing rugby league. 
Um, I always wanted to be in community. I'd done some study and some work um, to be able to be a youth worker when I finished. But how it all came about, I, I actually volunteered to, to go across to a juvenile justice centre and, and it all came about that the original meeting with the juvenile justice centre was I attended church down here and the church asked me to go in on one Sunday to share my story and I went in there and out of 25 kids, only two of them turned up, come and listen to me. I thought, geez, you don't have to be retired long and people forget you. <laughs> um, but then uh, when I was walking out, um, one of the workers there, um, said, you know, you've got a great story. He said, you know what, if you brought a few footies in, he said, you would have had every one of these kids here. Anyway, I said, you know what, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back. And so I didn't live too far away and I asked if I could come back. And then I started to share my story and lessons that I'd learned, like, you know, the setbacks of people not completely believing in you. But I used it through the analogy of footy and I was, you know, got activities and drills up and running and I was using those drills to help break conversation with these young people and then created a, um, a six-week program, and then the six-week program was asked to go into schools, and then I did an eight-week program. That's the Aspire program. And then I got really passionate about the um, prevention of violence, and in particular, domestic violence space. Um, and I think, you know, it's not what I do. I suppose that the fuel for it was why I do it. And a big part of why I wanted to do it is I've got three young daughters myself, and... Um, some of the statistics around violence towards women um, in our country, it, it really rattled me and I didn't know too much about it. I had a real blessed childhood. Um, but I, it really rattled me that, you know, one in three women were going to be victims of domestic violence. And I, and I couldn't live with that as a father, as a footballer, as a man in my community, having three daughters myself. And it'd be selfish just to think of it as looking after my own family. But I just think of all these you know, people that are affected by DV. And, and I really felt that, you know, rugby league could play its part in that. And so I created a program that was designed at, you know, reaching out and chatting to young people and using footy analogies and drills once again to get that message across. And in particular, I wanted to talk to men. Um, and rugby league was a great vehicle to get in front of men that probably um, might have been tough to connect with, especially with our expert partners in the past. And so created a little program um, that was running in schools down here. The NRL came and watched it one day. Um, they'd been doing some work in that space, loved it, um, what I was doing, took on board the Voice Against Violence program, um, been, been working with them sort of full-time in the last um, little space, but delivering VAV across Australia. But now we deliver it also in Papua New Guinea, Fiji, Tonga, New Zealand. Um, so it's, it's expanded a lot over that um, little period. Yeah, you must be really happy yeah. to keep the program going. Yeah, I am. I am. And it's been a lot of hard work. It hasn't been um, just myself either. I mean, I had, a, I had a bit of a vision, but I've got a really, you know, a great supportive team at the NRL in their community department. And, and they, their vision too was to, you know, use our game to, you know, really get this message out to a broader audience. And we've been able to do that. And so I'm really thankful um, that we've been able to, to do it. And there's still so much work to be done. Um, you know, there's so much work to be done within our own game, uh, with the education of our own players and continually doing that. And, you know, we've had a real emphasis on that and we, we don't always get it right. Um, and, and we do make mistakes and we need to own those mistakes. We need to be better for the future. And that's been a real passion of mine is, you know, to really try and get our own backyard in order, but then share that message to the broader community. Mm, yeah. So 
Al, you talk about sort of numbers and stats being thrown around sort of too easily, and you spoke about that one in three being a uh, an obviously terrible statistic in our country. Um, what are some of the methods you use to get those numbers across to your target audience? Yeah, so Al, to, to put you in a picture of what a, a Voice Against Violence workshop would be, um, you know, we turn up to a local footy club and we mainly aim for that age bracket of that 15 to 18 um, age bracket is, is been a real focus. And, and the reason for that has been that uh, these young men are starting to become leaders in their footy clubs. Um, they're transitioning out of junior footy to senior footy. And we believe that's really important that, um, you know, the role that you play in the culture you create on the field, but also off it. And so that prevention space has been really important for us. When I turn up to a club, I introduce myself, tell them a little bit about the Voice Against Violence background and why we're here. And then we, go, we jump straight out onto the footy field. And most of the participants are going, hey, well, how are we going to do this? And mostly we've been sitting in front of a PowerPoint ever getting messages like this. Um, but we go out and do uh, drills, rugby league drills out on the field and get them into you know, a group of three and then get them to think about three women that they have in their own life that they love and they care for. And then tell them that one in the stats are saying that in our country, one in three women are going to be affected from domestic violence. Now, how you feel? And so try and create this experience for them rather than just giving them a number um, and, you know, rattling off different things or sitting in front of a PowerPoint, try and give them an experience. And I've just found that rugby league's been um, one of those, you know, great ways to be able to use a common language um, but use its reach and use its voice to be able to connect and, and make a topic that sometimes is difficult to talk about um, much easier. Um, I watched your YouTube clip um, and it's if anyone wants to look it up, it's Voice Against Violence um, and if they put in Alan Tongue. And it was, it was a short clip, it was only five minutes, but it was really powerful and it just goes into detail of, of showing, you know, what you do in action with, with the young men in the groups. And one of the activities I, I saw you, you've got, you get the players back to back and, and lowering themselves down. Can you share that, uh, that exercise with our listeners? Yeah, yeah, sure. So in that little scenario there where we put them back to back and I sit them down and I talk about, um, you know, a big part of our work is through the Our Watch framework and the gender equality. And we talk about in that little drill, when I get them back to back, and they've got to put even weight into it. And I would hold them and I will say, well, we're in a relationship in our workplaces, in our communities. Who's got more power and control? Is it a man or is it a woman? And, you know, to hear the responses of the young men that are in it. And sometimes it can be a little bit alarming. But, um, you know, often, you know, we, we hear that, you know, we really believe that men have more power and control and authority. Um, and if that is all in one side, what happens to the other? You know, they're full, they hurt, they're vulnerable, um, they're isolated. And so but we know that in that little drill that when you do put the even amount of weight, yeah, there's still going to be some challenges. But it's a much, it's a much more harmonious situation to be in. It's a much more um, productive environment. And I really believe that that's a big part of our society is creating a culture of society, a game of rugby league, where you can be a man or you can be a woman and you can play the game. And that's one thing I've been really proud about our, our game at the moment is our fastest participation, our biggest growing um, numbers in our game is actually from women coming into our game. And we really would love to see that 
you know, every NRL club would have an NRLW club, but, you know, there's going to be some time in that. But I think sport has been a great way and, and, you know, take nothing away from the AFL and the cricket and soccer. And I think we've seen the growth of the women's game has been, you know, it's been remarkable. It's been great to see. And it's, um, it's been great for my own daughters to watch and, and sit there and be able to watch a sport that's always been male dominated on the TV screen and go, you know what, there's, there's a pathway for me there too if I want to do that. I think that's really important part of that gender equality, um, you know, activity and that drill is understanding that we all play a role in creating that environment. Absolutely. So, so you, you sort of talk about that positive ripple effect of um, socially responsible player behaviour on the wider community. So how frustrating is it for you personally to see the other direction of that ripple effect in terms of, you know, public antisocial behaviour within the NRL playing group? Yeah, I absolutely got it on, you know, uh, I tell you a couple of, seasons ago, um, you know, some of the challenges that we've all had and, you know, there are some just recently, it, it absolutely breaks your heart. Um, but, um, you know, for me, it, it sort of galvanises me to go, well, this is why we're doing what we're doing. Um, you know, I can look at it that it's a kick in the guts or I can go, you know what, you've got to get back out there, you've got to be louder, you've got to do more, we've got to educate our players more, we've got to edu- educate society more because, you know, I really believe that you know, rugby league is just a snapshot of society. You know, we've got three or 400 young men in our organisation that are still working out on being what a man is. And, you know, I think about my own journey through that too. Like, I really don't think that I could call myself a man until I was about 24 or five years of age. Um, you know, until I really understood a little bit more um, about what it, what it was really about. And so we've got a really young cohort in there. And so we've got to, we've got to make sure that, they're educated, they understand what they stand for, they understand what the game stands for, and then they show that to the rest of the community because they, they have a huge influence, not just on the field, but what they do off it. And so, yeah, I'm gutted by it. Um, it, it really um, it challenges the work and the opportunities that I do get, um, and, and people question it, and that's okay. But for me personally, it's just like, radio. Let's, let's get back out there. Let's go a bit harder next time. Let's find a way to get this message across um, in a more impactful way. That's good. Beautiful. Yeah, we might, we might touch on uh, a bit of fitness and, and the footy that back in the day. Um, so I've got, a, I've got a listener question here from a friend of the show, Scott Hazelton. He's also uh, he's on the Running Matters coaching crew as well. So he said to you, if you had to choose one of the follow the following to do tomorrow morning with your, with your current fitness level, so you had to get up in the morning. Yep. You, so the options are you'd have to run a marathon or play 10 minutes of first grade with the Raiders. Which would you do? <laughs> oh, I'd like to think I'd just do 10 minutes. Maybe I could play 10 minutes. I don't know. I might <laughs> even last 10 minutes. Uh, but I'll, you know what? I'd actually... Oh, geez, let me just feel myself. <laughs> I might have to do the running. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm still going to back myself at 40 years of age. I might just go out there and do a little cameo 10 minutes. It might be on the wing. I don't know. Although, but, uh, I, I, do, I do really enjoy my running. I, um, I live just out of town a little bit. Uh, and so I've got a nice little track that I, I tick along. And, 
you know, running to me, you know, although it's been a lot of interval training right throughout our footy days, it was a, a big part of that. We'd often start our pre-seasons, um, you know, getting some volume in the legs with a bit of longer distance. But, you know, a lot of our stuff is short and sharp, high intensity, you know, trying to replicate exactly what you were doing on a rugby league field. Um, but I also do a bit of work in that mental health space, the state of mind, and I've really understood more than ever, especially when I've retired, how important exercise is, not just for my physical health, but my mental health. And I know that if I can just start the day with a little bit of exercise. I mean, I did a small little weights routine this morning, but I often will just go for um, a little four kilometer loop here. Um, sometimes I double it up and do a little bit more. But if I can just start the day with a little bit of exercise, bit of running, bit of weights, whatever it is, you know, I just feel so much better about myself. I'm more productive in my work. Um, I think clearer. I sleep better. Um, so exercise to me still plays a huge role in my life. But 10 minutes for the Raiders, that's what I'm taking. <laughs> Good, Good answer. Good answer. Good so, Al, you, you talk about your, you know, your, your exercise routine. How, how is the body holding up after 13 years in the NRL? Yeah, it's, it's actually not too, too bad. Um, it's one of the things I remember chatting to uh, our sport, our doctor at the end, our um, sports doctor at the end when I was finishing up. And I have got some wear and tear in my left knee from, just from playing professional sports, still some problems with the left shoulder and this, that and the other. Um, but the importance of actually continually, you know, being active was a real important. A lot of people think, oh, with arthritis or different things, that you've got to completely stop and don't do anything. And, you know, we have some muscle wastage. And I've really found myself that if I can actually keep my leg strength up and keep my back strength and core strong um, is that I actually yeah, feel so much better. And, and the few little niggles, it's often when I do too much office work or I am sitting around too much, which sometimes in my work I have to do, um, is that that's when I actually start to get the, the problems. Like I get the aches and the pains and the different things. So it isn't going too, too bad. I mean, I, um, you know, if I, if I wasn't playing rugby league, I, I probably would have been a shearer. Um, so I grew up just outside of Tamworth um, in a small rural community. My dad's a wool class. My pop was a shearer and my brother was a shearer. uncle was a shearer. And I enjoyed that sort of things. And I think, well, I would have had arthritis either way, where it would have been, whether it's in the left knee or a lower back or whatever it is. So um, I think it's just, you know, I'm more grateful that I had the opportunity to go through a professional sporting career and I'll just have to deal with the consequences along the way. It's just a uh, badge of hard work, Al. <laughs> and the scars that's i've got plenty of them too don't worry for to tell the kids i'm sure i'm sure mate over over 13 years of, of playing that that level of sport how did training change over that period of time was there was there much i don't know new new thinking new science along that sort of decade plus yeah it was it was really um it's been a that was a real insight to me. I mean, I came out, I finished school in 1998, went down to the Raiders in 99, and it was it was your typical probably um, old school rugby league training. There was um, a bit more of the one kilometer runs or the you know just a uh, it would be separate like the football skills from the cardio skills. And then it'd be, a, you know, the typical sort of weights that you would do, whether it be bench, squat, chins, that sort of, you know, your stock standard um, style of training. And then only a few years in, we got a new coach that come over from England um, and he sort of been watching. He was as, as an assistant coach at the time and then transitioned across. Um, 
and then really started to focus in a lot more on being specific completely to the game of rugby league, which a lot of clubs are now. But I went through that transition of the old school sort of way to now where a lot of our cardio on that were with footy in hand. You know, you were doing skills games and you were doing, or when you were doing running, you would run and you would do efforts that were replicating what you would do on the field. So forwards would be doing a different running program to what the outside backs were. The outside backs would do the longer distance runs of 40 or 50 or 60 metres where the forwards were doing 10, 15 metre sort of shuttles up and back and a lot more off the ground. And, and so all of a sudden we started to get GPS, you know, tracking everything, GPS tracking all our movements uh, in a game. And then they would go, okay, now we've got to replicate this uh, in our training. So it completely, it completely changed. And even with the gym and, you know, the, the way, you know, the more power athletes and, endurance athletes and the way that they train in the gym um, it, it completely changed in my little um, time while I was there so it was great to great to be a part of it and see it evolve um, but it's certainly uh, well I mean I only look back and I think you see it through every decade how our game improves but the, the level of footy that we've got at the moment when you look at the players the, the, the minutes that they play the intensity that they play at the size of the players they are and their skills and their skills is i mean back in the day it was a half and a five eight and a, you know maybe a fullback that had its great skills now we've got front rowers you know throwing footballs and chipping and chasing and doing you know it's just it's the game continues to evolve and get better that's uh well above a props pay grade Al. you know that <laughs> that's right <laughs> hey um Talking about the GPS stuff, did, did you ever wear one out in the field? And, uh, you know, how much distance would you have covered during a, like, let's say you played an 80-minute game? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that, you know, they're looking at around now about, like, that six, seven, eight-kilometre mark on where guys will do. And when you think of that as in interval running, too, it's, it's pretty full on. Um, but I actually didn't because I was in the early days of the GPS and the GPS used to sit on your back and they were... They were big ones. They were they were like the Tom Toms in the car of the old days, you know. Like the, uh, so I, I just didn't like the, um, you know, that sitting on, you know, it just it wasn't it wasn't comfortable for me. But I remember, you know, talking about how it's evolved. One of our strength and conditioning coaches, and he was in the rehab. He he was there before the GPS has come in, and he was measuring, you know, like writing it down roughly, you know, penciling it on a bit of paper and going, oh, he's 10 metres here, he's done this here, and, you know, changing direction here. Like, so imagine having that job, just watching somebody and trying to work it all out. But, um, you know, now all the players, they wear the GPS in all of the games, but in all of their training. And as soon as they get to their threshold, you know, they'll even be pulled from training. So they'll be going for so long and people are sitting there watching all their numbers. Their numbers get too high you know, a risk of injury, um, you know, that's it, you're pulled out of the session. So it's very, it is very measured. Um, and there's, it's got to be a balance with that, isn't there? With, with our game is, you know, there is so much performance and that, that data is so, so important. But our game teaches you too to be out of your comfort zone and how you respond, you know, when you are down and out. So you've got to create that balance of giving the players an opportunity to learn that in training um, to be able to put it in the game, but do it in a safe way where they're not going to cop an injury. Yeah, it's good. Can you see yourself getting involved in the game um, in, a, in a coaching position? You're seeing 
still very passionate about the game. Is that a direction you may head in the future? Well, that was that was always the thought process when I first retired. I, I just wanted to have a couple of years where I thought I'd just give a bit of distance between the playing group and myself. And I always thought too that um, the greatest coaches that I've had, whether it be through the NRL or throughout my um, you know high school and, and primary school days, um, the great coaches didn't just have a good knowledge of football. Um, they knew how to connect to you as a person and they could do that across a whole team and they could talk to me differently. They could talk to the guy that was beside um, And you see with the great coaches in our games, uh, in our game that, uh, you know, because a lot of the footy that's being played amongst the, the teams, to be fair, in the NRL is very similar. You know, there's a few differences uh, with a lot of the structure, with some of the structures, but a lot, there's a lot of similarities between the way that style of game. But it's the sides that just play for each other and the sides that just find a way to dig that little bit deeper or come up with the right play at the right time and have the confidence to be able to do that. And I really believe that that comes from being instilled from the coaches. And for me to get that, I thought I needed more than just a rugby league experience. And that's why I thought going away for a couple of years, doing some work in juvenile justice in our adult prison, doing some youth work, would give me a really good knowledge of that. But then after a couple of years of doing the community work and starting to see it grow, I got entrenched in this. And so it is coaching in a roundabout way, but it's not in the rugby league space. It's a little bit more in just life in general. Yeah, it's good life experience regardless. Mm. Can you um, share a story with, with you that's, that's sort of made you really proud being involved with the youth justice system and the program? Yeah, I've... Um, you know, there's, there's been a couple. I think one in the, the younger sort of space, like when I was in the, in the juvenile justice and different things, I've been able to do programs um, in there and with some, um, you know, with some kids that have done it tough too. I know that they might have made some wrong decisions, but they've had a you know, pretty tough upbringing too. So um, have certainly some sympathy there. Um, but to be able to go through a program and then help them support, you know, get a job, and then to see them down the track playing in a local footy club um, when it all seemed like there was sort of no light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but to see them go through that and, and learn from their mistake and do their time, um, which they deserve to do. Um, but to be able to learn that, come out, do an apprenticeship, get a job, and now play for a local footy club and be integrated back into society um, is has been, you know, one of the real... Uh, yeah, one of the one of the real highlights, and I and I got to actually um, go out and help with this local club. Just do a little bit of uh, you know strength and conditioning on the side. I just went down and did some did some stuff, and to be able to go and train alongside this young fella, um, you know, it was four, four or five years later. Um, but just to do it freely down at the local park, playing for the local footy side, you know, in that space is just it was a really. It was a really great moment for me. And I, I mean, I didn't do it on my own. There was no way that I, I want to take credit for that. But it was just a small part that I was able to play and able to link him back in with a local footy club. And just to see him be able to, you know, have those simple freedoms and joys was something that um, is something that was really, you know, really, um, you know, pleasing to me. But also, yeah, you know, in, in the adult prison and, um, you know, doing some stuff and seeing some people that, um, you know, worked a part of there and, you know, been working hard on themselves still, you know, not, not having it all right, but still working hard on themselves and, and trying to make a, 
you know, some better choices down the track has been, you know, you get those little pleasing moments every now and again or I bump into a kid here or there and they'll say, oh, I remember when we did, you know, this activity or, uh, you know, we, I remember when we did this uh, drill, remember when we did this footy or they'll remember, oh, yeah, follow your dreams, your, your next effort, your best effort, the little sayings that I've got to be able to, you know, say that back to you, um, you know, three or four years down the track has been really nice to see. Yeah, that's awesome. I've got a uh, listener question coming from uh, Jenny on the green. So she's asked, having a scholarship with the Broncos during your high school years and coming from the relative warmth of Tamworth, was it a tough decision to accept the contract with the mighty yet frosty Raiders? Uh, that's a really good question because it's, it's another, you know, it was a massive decision in my life and I had to sort of make it at the age of 18 and I'd been on scholarship with the Bronx for three years and I had, you know, another every intention of going up to the Bronx. Uh, I went and visited the club uh, when I when I finished. I also had an opportunity to join St George Illawarra Dragons. They were just combining at the time, but St George. Um, and we went and visited the clubs. Um, but then I came down to the Raiders. Um, and, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, was it because you think you couldn't break into the Broncos system or whatever? And that wasn't the case at all. Um, I came down to the Raiders and we went and watched the game and afterwards, my dad and I, um, they took us to the after-match function, which was just at a little, like, it was like a pub, a big pub. It was, it was like we were back in Tamworth, you know, like it was just, you had a steak, you had to cook your own steak, and we met the players and had a chat. And I just felt, you know what, this is like a big country town. Players were fantastic, though. You know, it just, it just seemed like, you know, I just remember going around and seeing the facilities and everything, and it was nowhere near the Broncos, let me tell you. But it just seemed like they were good people. It was a country club. And there was a couple of players that I played in the Aussie schoolboy side that were coming along. So there was a couple of connections there as well. And I come home and I had no family down here. I, I had some actual family not far away. Mum's sister lives in Bow Desert, not far from, um, you know, Brisbane there. And so I had more connections up in Brisbane than I did in Canberra. Um, but I just, I, I just followed my gut. And I just went, you know what? I think I'm going to go down to the Raiders. And... I'm still here. <laughs> uh, good. And, mate, what, what were the challenges of training and playing in Canberra? I imagine it would have taken a while to warm the body up for that first tackle during the winter. Yeah, I mean, I got to play in my debut season too in the game in the snow when we played the Tigers. Um, it, was, uh, it was crazy. You had the buckets of hot water on the side to warm up your hands when you come off. It was unlimited interchange at that time. It was... Um, you know, and it was even worse. The snow was worse for a reserve grade. We were, we were saying, there's no way we're playing in this. There's no way in the world. And um, anyway, they, it actually eased off a little bit um, and we got out there and played. But, you know, it, it was. I think, you know, that preparation was really important. Um, you know, I always had a little thing too. I'd, I get the, um, we had Bobby Griffin was a, a masseuse of ours and yeah, I'd get him to rub some deep heat into my feet. If I was always, if I could, get, if I could warm my feet up, um, and keep a beanie on for as long as I could. Um, I was right. If I could keep my toes warm, I was okay. But it was, you know, in all honesty, and one of those things, and we used it to our advantage too, because we once you got going, um, you know, you just got to really worry about it too much. And we trained in these conditions. Yeah, there was some, um, you know, some tough mornings or some tough evenings, you know, the wind and the sleet and the different things. But, you know what, it's... Um, yeah, it was it was all just part of the experience, and and you know makes the Raiders the Raiders, I suppose. And it's a tough road trip to come down here for some clubs. 
Yeah, hard as nails. What, what about um, talk about the Broncos and their, you know, maybe better facilities or what have you? So, um, do you think the money matters in that sense, or does it really just come down to hard work, mate? No, I, I think um, the the biggest probably difference to me was um, I suppose not saying no to Wayne Bennett. Um, because I think the, the most important thing, you can have the flashiest facility in the world, but uh, a 20 kilo weight still weighs 20 kilos, whether it's got rust or sweat or spit or whatever it is on it. Um, so that, that, to me, the facilities um, doesn't, that isn't, shouldn't be in your decision-making whatsoever. Um, but it's all about the coaching and the pathways and the people that you have around you. Because, you know, we know that if you've got the right people around you, uh, to get the best out of yourself, that that's that's the most crucial thing. It, it, um, and and to, to be fair, you know, early on, you know, we were out of demountables and that at the Raiders, and I think we used that as motivation. You know, we were it, it was it was like that's it doesn't matter what um, where we are, what we're doing. It's a, it's about the intent and the attitude that you bring to that workplace. And um, so, yeah, but everybody's got a center of excellence now, and they're all flash as, and you know. But in saying that, how look how good the game's got. But to me, it wasn't so much in my decision making. It was about the facilities. It was more about the people. And like I said, even though I said no to Wayne Bennett, we had Mal Meninga as the coach down here. Um, but it was the people that I met within the organisation that I just went, you know what? This this feels like a family down here. Um, and I, I think you know this environment, I could get the best out of myself. Good. You um you mentioned to me uh, prior to this interview that you, you you prided yourself on on being the fittest at the club when you were there. How'd you go about doing that? Was there a lot of extras going on on the side? Yeah, well, I needed to because I you know to be really honest, I didn't have you know the greatest skill set compared to a lot of the other guys, and I continually say that you know there, there would have been two or three players. For every guy that's made it, there's two or three that probably could have and should have, and um, you know more probably in my case. Um, so I really needed, you know, my, my skills and what I did bring to the team, you know, was was energy and to do it over a long period of time, you know, support, defence, you know, dummy half play. I played a lot of, so you got a lot of touches of footy. So you needed to be fit and you needed to be focused and your concentration needed to be on for that whole time. Um, and so I, you know, right from word go. Uh, even when I was you know, living in a boarding house and that down here, um, you know, in my little time on my own, so away from the under-19s and when we were training, I used to run a golf course that was um, beside where I was living. And um, I would sprint the fairways and jog the greens to the next hole. And you do the 18 holes and I would just go around. But that was just my little bit of extra, um, you know, fitness that I would do. And I'd do it before I'd go to work as an me <laughs> apprentice mechanic. Um, you know, I often tell people that the, the two tr hardest training sessions of the year uh, are on the 13th of October and the 25th of December for me. And the 25th of December being Christmas, I wanted to be working when nobody else was working. And the 13th of October is my birthday. And it's, the, uh, it's usually in the off season. Most people are, you know, relaxing or on your birthday having a bit of a, a breather. But I wanted to be making sure that I was working and working hard. And they'd be often my two hardest training sessions by myself. But it was what I did. And I remember doing it even from when I was a kid. I was, you know, running across the plowed paddocks. And I'm thinking, you know, everybody else is running on nice, flat, smooth grass. And if I can be fast, if I can get through this on plowed dirt, you know, I'm going to be better for it. Um, so I just, I, I had it entrenched in me that my mentality, I needed to be strong. I needed to be fit. 
um, that way. And so um, I continued to do that, you know, right throughout. And, you know, there, there are certainly um, times where people, um, you know, beat me in certain things or did whatever. That, that was a part of it. But I can pretty honestly say that, um, you know, over that period of time consistently, you know, I, I certainly, you know, made sure that I worked harder than anybody else. And, and that's how you made 1,087 tackles in a season. There you go. Bloody impressive, mate. Um, I've read in your, uh, your stats that you, you weighed in at 87 kgs for playing weight. So firstly, is this accurate? They tend to exaggerate these things in the uh, magazines. Yeah, that's right. They might have got me right at the start of the season, but I might have lightened off towards the end. But yeah, I was. I tried to... I usually always... You know, I tried, that was about my playing weight that I always tried to get. Um, you know, most, most guys that played in my position, you know, especially when I was playing lock and different things, you're, you're 100 kilos at a minimum sort of thing to play in that position. But that, that actually created a challenge, not only because I was a bit, you know, I was smaller, so the physical barriers that that creates. But I always, I always had to overeat. I was always, you know, like I actually really think in my my best playing weight would actually be about 82 or 83 kilos because I would be completely, you know, lean and different things like that. Whereas I was, I was forever, you know, I, I would have, I'd have just tuna and rice just ready to go. To, as soon as I got off the field, I would just be, you know, I would be eating pasta sandwiches. <laughs> I would be on sandwiches, just trying to get carbs and food into me. And you know what? It's, Everybody thinks, oh, how is that? You can eat whatever you want. Well, you can't eat whatever you want because your skin folds can go through and you don't feel good either. So I needed to be a player that could play 80 minutes but play four or five kilos above my best playing weight. And so it really, it created, it was a real jump. It was a real challenge of getting that balance right of feeling good enough on the field to carry that weight. You know, people make that, uh, I suppose, that analogy of, you know, imagine getting a four or five kilo bags of spuds and, and running around with that around the Blue Mountains on the weekend, you, you're running that with that extra weight. It's a, it's a real challenge. And so having that, it was a really, it was a really tricky thing for me. Uh, Wolfie wouldn't know anything about that extra weight. He's about 55 ring and get, mate. <laughs> I do overeat, but I'm, I don't have an excuse for it. <laughs> uh, mate, talk, talking about, um, I guess, food and, and, and hydration stuff, how much water do you really need out on the field? It always seems to me like it's just an excuse to have a chat to the trainer and work out some tactics. Do you, do you take any on board there? Yeah, and I mean, that's it's another real um, personal situation as well. I know that some guys, for me, I, I hardly took on anything during a game. And if I did, I would just have, you know, some Gatorade um, throughout it just to try, because I wasn't taking in much volume. Um, you know, trying to get as much electrolytes and everything um, in at the time. But you're right, there is a lot of stoppages. That, um, the, the trainers are more like, a you know, an extra man on the field giving messages and whatnot. But uh, you, you, there, there are some guys that, you know, they might take on um, a litre of fluid or more throughout a game. But for me personally, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have taken on that much. I, I'd probably get through a bottle of... Um, Powerade, I suppose, throughout. And I mean, there's a bit of a break at half time. You might get a little bit more of that there. But, um, you know, for me personally, I was somebody that, and even with the pre match meal, it had often come up in the dressing sheds as well before I'd run on the field. I was always somebody that 
I almost needed, you know, nothing in my system or so we, we would really focus on, you know, we would have hydration tests and whatnot, you know, three, four days out from the game leading in, you would continually have them. So, you know, by the time you come into game time, you know, you're not trying to load up on, you know, carbs the night before and load up on water the night before to make you sluggish and everything like that. Um, you know, we would we would sort of you'd almost be tapering off because you're continually fueled right throughout that you know, that that week or in particular the back end of the week. Yeah, it's very similar, very similar to running. I've got a uh, another listener questions coming from Johnny Mack. It says uh, my favourite quote uh, pertaining to Alan Tongue is "Who needs a big really when you have a great tongue?" Now, uh, now can you explain what that's all about? I can't because um, <laughs> I've got three daughters and I'm not going to go any further. But how it all came about, how it all came about, Willie Mason was um, playing against the Raiders and, uh, you know, he'd moved around a couple of clubs and, you know, big personality in our game and huge human being as well. And um, I've, I've actually got the photo around a uh, jersey that's just, you know, you guys can see me here just behind me. And um, it's got... a great battle these two people cheering we've got them beat by about 20 points so it was they're standing as proud as and it's got me as Willie Mason and then the sign you need the big Willie when you've got a great tongue and uh, it was just one of those uh, yeah I've got some really great friendships and great um, yeah camaraderie between a lot of the fans of the Raiders which has been awesome but it continually gets brought up that uh, that little sign so a bit of fun that's a crack out you probably get asked this a lot, but who was the um, your, your your greatest fear, like the, the person you least wanted to play against? Yeah, I mean, we had some big battles throughout. I don't know if I would say an individual, but I'm thinking of the battles that we would always take on. I mean, the Raiders and the Broncos in particular. Um, back when I sort of started, um, my first year was with Laurie Daly, Dave Ferner, Brett Rollins, Jason Croker, Kenny Nagus, all of these guys up against Langer, Walters, Talis, Webke, Sivan Aceba, like the big battles back, um, you know, and the Raiders Broncos are sort of from that 90s era was the grandfather that never was. Um, they'd always missed out on each other. Broncos won a couple of the Raiders, but they never met in the decider. And so there were some big battles there. And then start of the Melbourne Storm, you know, dominance, which they still continue today. They were always really tough battles. Like they, like I said, it's not so much as an individual thing, but you just knew when you come off that field, you played a tough game of footy and the Bronx would do that. The Melbourne, relentless with what they do. Um, and it was credit to their organisation. Um, people often ask too, who, who's the guy that you least like to tackle um, I remember when we were playing against the Panthers um, one Saturday night, I was captain for the Raiders and a guy by the name of Petro Sivanaceva was the captain of the, Bron uh, the Panthers at the time. He'd only just come from the Broncos. And trying to lift our side um, as much as I could this night, we were behind on the scoreboard. Petro's taken one of his stock standard hit-ups deep into their half. I've shot out of line as hard as I could to try and put a shot on him try and, you know, lift my team, try and dislodge the footy, do whatever, raced out. And I hit him as hard as I could. And it was felt like I had just hit a telegraph pole. And I, would <laughs> ring. I was ringing like I was there just going, oh, my goodness. Petro just gets up, plays the ball, goes on, has another head up in the set of six. And I'm still shaking like crazy. He was dead set, hitting like hitting a Mack truck he was. And... Uh, 
you know, you do that all the time. Just one of those guys that was just as tough as nails. Real hard ass. Mate, um, I've got another listener question in from Green Machine 85. So pertaining to that, actually, so being a tough as guts tackling machine, do you think that if you were born in Queensland, you would have played 10 to 20 origin games or 20 to 30 origin games? <laughs> I'm not hating you well. I, I don't know if I can answer that, but how that all comes about is, um, yeah, there often people would say, you know, the, the style of player that Queensland picked was a lot more, you know, like I, I sort of played and, you know, thinking about those guys like a Dallas Johnson, for instance, who was a guy that was, you know, he's a bit heavier than me, but not, not much bigger, but, you know, played a lot of games for, for Queensland and Michael Crocker and those sort of guys. And, and probably, I still think they were better footballer than me, let me tell you, but they, they sort of were a similar style of player and they would continue to get picked and Queensland were continually beating New South Wales. Um, so I'm not sure whether, you know, I was, I was fortunate to be in a couple of squads for the New South Wales side, but um, it wasn't meant to be. Um, but once again, and I shared back at the start about how you look back on these times and you think, why me? And, and I wanted, to, I was desperate to play in that arena. I just wanted to test myself in that arena. But I use those messages now with the young people that I meet that sometimes you put your heart and your soul into everything. Um, and, and it doesn't always come off the way that you want it. But as long as you can walk away knowing that you have given absolutely everything that you can, you've been an absolute success. And I feel that even though I didn't get to play for New South Wales, I didn't get to play for Australia, I didn't actually get to win a premiership, which was my ultimate dream. When I retired at the end of 2011, I walked away going, you know what? I, I, I've done everything I can. I've trained as hard as I can. I've tried to be the best teammate I can. I tried to be best I could for the club, for the Mighty Raiders and for the game. And yeah, it didn't all come off the way I wanted it to. But I left, you know, with a smile on my face. And, and I leave content with that. And I still, I still look back on that. I still love to be wearing a premiership ring. And I'd be showing you everywhere, don't worry about that. I'd be wearing it everywhere I went. But um, it wasn't meant to be. It wasn't meant to be. And I think that's, you know, in, in a society in, you know, I look at my own kids and different things where we look for that instant gratification and we want something and we want it now, is that sometimes you've got to work your guts out. Things mightn't go your way, but I'll tell you what, the lessons you've learned from it are going to hold you in much better stead for whatever's down the track. Um, so sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. That's all I've got to, I've got to learn out of it and be better for it for down the track. That's perfect. I love that. Yeah. I just got to, I want to draw a couple of comparisons between, you know, running and rugby league a little bit. But we are a running podcast after all. So but there's a bit of debate in um, ultra marathons regarding the use of anti-inflammatories and pain medication to get through a race, like particularly a long, tough race. Um, was this something that you needed to do to get through 220 first grade games, mate? Was there often pain medication involved? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, um, you know, especially like, you know, with local anaesthetic, just to get through, I, I remember playing, you know, a number of games. The AC, I played about, um, I think it was about 17 or 18 games in that final year. I missed six because of the shoulder. Um, but I had it loaded up with local anaesthetic just to get me back onto the field. Um, you know, broken ribs, playing with busted ribs, um, you know, that sort of thing. But, it, you know, also with any inflammatory just to, 
you know, get, get you through and get that started. And often, you know, the recovery side of things is so important in our game and just that extra boost along. Me personally, I was somebody that really tried to hold off as long as I could. Um, but people often say, oh, you're, you're a really quick healer. If you say, oh, you meant to be out for six weeks and you got back in four. But I, I wasn't continually taken. Some guys would, you know, if you get an anti-inflammatory, you know, doctors say, oh, you might need it. They would take it every week sort of thing. Whereas I, I wouldn't do that unless I was, you know, almost down and out sort of thing. But I think my body responded to it really well um, when I did take it. And so um, absolutely it was part and parcel. And you get to those stages with a lot of, you know, the injuries that we do um, get in rugby league is that you just need that, um, you know, that last little bit or it gets to a certain point and, you, you know, you're trying to get back onto the field as soon as you possibly can. And, you know, you need some cortisone or whatever just to get that, that um, anti-inflam right into that area just to, to get you up and moving again sort of thing. So um, it certainly is something that they're very careful on. Um, but it, it, and you know, for me personally, I, I tried to steer clear of it as much as I could, but yeah, you certainly need it throughout um, the seasons. Mm, for sure. What, what about that idea of recovery week to week? So how, how much time did you spend doing things like pool sessions, massage, stretching and rolling to get yourself ready for the, the next game? Yeah. And th this was another part of the evolution, I think, from when I first started um, to, to sort of the back end is that once you're in season, it's almost a constant, um, you know, rehabilitation process that you go through. You're actually, you're never, you're never completely um, back to square one. You're, you're almost in a constant decline. You're just trying to slow it down. And so, you know, massage and stretching is a part of every day. Um, you know, you do your prehab exercises before every session. Um, every one of our warm-up has that prevention aspect to it. Um, so you're continually doing it right throughout uh, but early on, I mean, we'd only just go for a swim the next day. You'd go for a swim in the pool and have a bit of a stretch and you'd have a debrief and, and that'd be it. But whereas now, you know, there is, you know, there's much more, um, you know, focus on that recovery um, because we see consistently throughout our teams that play that the sides that can keep the same sort of 20-odd players, 25 players on the field, um, the, the sides that have, you know, might have a squad and they have to use 35 players plus in a season, they don't build up that continuity and they're the sides that are often at the bottom. And so that, that yeah, that, that rehabilitation and keeping the players on the field is so, um, so important. And it's a, yeah, I would say now it's, it's a constant thing. It's a daily thing um, with more of a focus early on in the week, getting over those bumps and bruises. The training load is much lighter. And then you slowly increase to the middle of the week, but then you taper back off again going into actual game time so you can build your energy again. So there's almost, there's a build up and there's a decline before you go full on again and it just continually goes around. And, you know, they would cycle that in pre-season as well. When we aren't playing games, you would often have, you know, three heavy weeks with a lighter week just to freshen back up. And then you would go again, um, you know, back into it. And then you might go through that strength phase, a power phase, an endurance phase. So, you know, you're continually doing it, but it's a bit like a washing machine. You've got to have a bit of everything in your game. So it's a, they do a great job, um, the S&C coaches at all the clubs. Yeah. And there's a lot of similarities there, I guess, with the, with the running sort of taper and build up and all that sort of stuff. So it's good, good to hear. Um, runners are like also known to try almost, anything legally of course to get that 
extra 1% happening on race day. So, you know, I'm talking litres of beetroot juice, bicarb soda, straight pickle juice, etc. So what are some of the wacky things you, you might have tried on game day for that perceived extra edge out? Yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't... Um, so for me personally, I'm not a... Um, um, you know, too, too crazy in all of those, you know, little rituals and different things. Like I had a similar type of warm up that I like to do and different things, but I was always somebody that, um, you know, just tried to keep it simple, um, you know, with, with my preparation. Um, but I, I mean, before, before games, you know, we talk about some caffeine uh, stimulants to be able to, to help out where it was a couple of no doses before we've talked about, you know, that, um, that increasing, um, you know, concentration and endurance and everything like that. So to be able to do that. Um, but other, really for me, like, and it maybe um, might be a bit superstitious. I don't really know. But I, I just had something. I just, I was always confident if I'd just done the work during the week or I'd had it in the bank. Like, the only times that I really got worried about before a game is sometimes you might pick up an injury and you couldn't train or you might only do the captain's run for 40 minutes. And so you haven't been able to get that volume. You haven't been able to be put in the scenarios in the training. You haven't gone through your notes. You haven't done your video prep on your opposition. You haven't done your video review on yourself as good as you have done. They were the only times where I thought my performance, you know, and that's a more of a mental thing too, but I just knew that if I trained my guts out and if I worked as hard as I could, get there to game time, mate, you could put anything in me and uh, it wouldn't worry me. Uh, you could feed me McDonald's before I went out. As long as I'd done the prep beforehand, I'd rip in and have a go. And so that was that was what I, you know, <laughs> it's not there. Yeah, that's how I got my supplements. You occasionally wore the uh, the headgear. It, it looked pretty uh, thin. Did, did it save you any head knocks? Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I think... Um, you know, there is a little bit of, you know, a theory out there that sort of says, oh, they don't really stop concussions, the head knocks. So they might stop a few bumps and bruises. Um, but how, where it first started, well, I, I played with it a little bit when I was in my juniors, um, but not when I first started my career. But I actually busted my chin open um, in a game and I was continually getting it stitched up at half time, putting half a dozen stitches in. Then I get it stitched up again at full time. And then for a few weeks, I was getting it wrapped around with bandages and the bandage would fall off and we're just trying to do everything to, to keep the bandage on and different things. And so I was wearing headgear to keep the bandage on. <laughs> so that's, that's where they're sort of getting back into wearing headgear again. And then it almost became a little bit of a confidence thing. And I think it, I think it certainly, you know, helps with a few of the bumps and bruises and, and I would encourage it. Um, uh, but whether it is it completely, I think, you know, the greatest thing that we've seen, the big part is, you know, the tackle techniques and the different things, but the mouth guards, how important they are in stopping concussions and whatnot. Um, but for me, yeah, it, it started out as just trying to keep a bandage on, but it certainly, I think it helped um, keep away a few bumps and bruises, although you look at me now and I don't know, maybe we should look at that. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't pick you for an NRL player. You're a good looking oh, no, Thank you. Thank you. Hey, <laughs> um we might uh we might finish up there and, and it's been great chatting to you and really I, I really appreciate your time um some really good lessons in there and i'm sure all the listeners would have would have enjoyed the chat um 
we should finish by saying that if, if someone we know has experienced violence, um, they can call 1-800-RESPECT and in an emergency, triple O or Lifeline, uh, who can provide a step-by-step -step help plan. So in Lifeline 131114. So um, yeah, nice way to finish. And um, did, you, did you want to finish with anything else? Yeah, I, I do. And I, I really appreciate, um, you know, you both for giving me opportunity to, um, you know, share a bit of the work that I do and the stories. Um, you know, sometimes with the work that you do, it just needs to cross the right ears, the right eyes um, for it to make a difference. And, and a big, big message that, you know, it can be around violence, it can be around, you know, whatever it is, whatever's going on in your life. But I've got a little saying for our programs and we leave this behind when we do our workshops and the message is the culture's in your hands and and I make that connection of the footy's like a life it, it gave me life it gave me purpose it gave me a team it's given me a job it's given me a passion and it connects me with the work that I do now and it you know, lessons that I learn out of it I try and instill as a husband as a father um, and so when I talk about you know your life is in your hands a culture, you know, I really believe that as men, we play a really important role um, about the prevention of violence and, and what we can do and the examples that we set, the examples that we set in our own family homes, but the examples that we set to other men, you know what, when women aren't about um, is so, so important. And we all get that opportunity. Um, it's all in our hands. And I, I just, yeah, I, I'm really appreciative of, you know, I know I'm not, a long distance runner and I've listened to some of your podcasts and I really love, you know, hearing the insights, but, you know, for me to be able to share a rugby league message on, on your podcast is, is something that I'm really grateful for. So thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure, mate. Mm. Champion. Thanks. Thanks again. We'll, we'll chat soon. Thank Go you. the Raiders. Yeah. <laughs>